Welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery, brought to you by spiritualteachers.org. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I have a quick note to let you know that the TAT Foundation's November retreat is coming up soon. And that's going to be November the 11th through the 13th at the TAT Center in North Carolina. The theme is going home, which is kind of appropriate for me because it will be the first time I've been to a meeting in person since November of 2019. It's also the 50th anniversary of Richard Rose's first public talk. So there's going to be a special session with some of the members from the early days of the group including my old mentor, Augie Turak, who founded the Self-Knowledge Symposium and was highly influential in starting me on the spiritual search. To find out more about the meeting, go to tatfoundation.org and look for the banner on the homepage. This edition of the podcast features Mike Gagenheimer. Mike is the co-author with me of the new book, Passages, an Introduction and Commentary on Richard Rose's Albigen System, Mike also is the president of the TAT Foundation, and he helps lead a local self-inquiry group based in Columbus, Ohio. We had a great discussion, ranging from Mike's early days with Richard Rose to his views on rapport and transmission. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Mike, thank you for joining me this month. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and thanks for asking me. Yeah, absolutely. I know we've had, uh, uh, it's been a while planning this. It seems like we talk about it and then uh, things in life come up and we keep putting it off. But here we are. And yeah. I'm ready to jump right in if you're ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Thanks. One of the questions I usually like to ask people is uh, there's this idea of uh, the born spiritual seeker. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, Richard Rose, for example, talking about when he was a little kid, like he was writing many are called, few are chosen, like when he was really little. And I'm curious if for yourself, if, if you think of yourself as a born seeker or if that's something that came a little later in life. I don't really see myself as a born seeker. Uh, for, for me, it was always more of a... Uh, philosophical question and it was only after i met rose that that the philosophical question turned into a question of self-definition uh, for for me the the little intuitions about life that i had uh, growing up were the, the were the spark of uh, curiosity i guess you'd say you know like i wear glasses so what was real perception you know, was it when my glasses were off or when they were on? And then it was like, well, I'm also seeing everything upside down and my mind's flipping it. And then uh, there were questions about color and, you know, what's red is actually everything but red. It's, it's the one thing that's reflected. So there were all, a lot of little silly beginning questions about that. And, um, you know, I wondered about personality you could see people talking nicely on the phone then they'd hang up and start bitching 
And, uh, you know, you saw my friends uh, uh, slowly become hypnotized by girls when they reach a certain age. And I wondered what that was all about. And, uh, you know, it was really more questions about that, about the unknowns. I got into physics and, uh, you know, the basic questions about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and time and space being the same. And, <clears throat> gee, what's this unified field theory all about? Things like that. So really, it was it started as a question of questioning about life and the way th things didn't seem to be the way they appeared to be. Is there a point in time that you feel like uh, you switched from questions and wondering about things to the idea that, oh, maybe I could take some action and I could actually discover an answer to these questions? Well, I think when I was in high school, uh, I thought, you know, I was smart. That was before I got to college and found out I was stupid. I truly was. But the... <laughs> But the, the fact was, you know, I thought that if you could understand first principles, everything else would become apparent. Everything would go flow from there, kind of like the, the two plus two equals four and all else follows uh, line from 1984, the, the book. So that's, that's when I was thinking there was an answer, but it just wasn't in the realm of of uh, a spiritual search and it was when when i met rose in fact the first thing i directly asked him got up the courage to directly ask him a question was was you know what is the thing in itself it was like how to you know experience always just seemed to be one step removed from reality so the question was what's what's the thing in itself and he said ah that's the trick and that was it. That's all. That's all he said. But it was because of him that I I started then down a path of realizing the answer was really inside, not outside. How old were you when you met Rose? I was. Uh, I had just turned eighteen. It was my freshman year in college, and uh, it was. It turns out, I guess, uh, it was only a month or so after Augie started up the meetings of the Pyramid Zen Society at the University of Pittsburgh, after hearing uh, Rose talk at the Theosophical Society, he had started these meetings up. And uh, one of my friends at school saw a poster and, and uh, he and I went down and he subsequently didn't, uh, didn't fire up his interest, but I stuck around. And that's Augie Turak, right? Right. Right. He and Ray Sosco are the ones that started that uh, Pyramid Zen group. Uh, did, uh, for you at the time, was Zen something that seemed kind of weird? Because it sounded like you described yourself as more of a, maybe a scientific, philosophical, philosophical inquiry. Was Zen sort of a, an oddball thing or did that just seem like normal for you? Like, oh, yeah. I'll check out Zen. You know, I, I, it was the early 70s. So there was a lot of stuff that uh, mm. uh, people were looking at. And it didn't seem odd. It didn't necessarily seem cool. But the, the, it, I think it was uh, partly that I had heard from one of my friends uh, 
who came back from his Catholic school one day studying comparative religion that about the Atman and the Brahman. And when he talked to me about that, I thought, man, that makes a lot of sense. And I don't know why, it just intuitively made a lot of sense. And so, you know, the Zen, the Zen side of things just didn't seem to be weird, just seemed to be one of those things that was worth looking into. Compared to what you had been doing for your spiritual path before you met Rose, like how was uh, after Rose compared to before Rose? What was your path like? Well, that's that's interesting because I read his his book, uh, the Albigen Papers, is uh, a meditation paper that he wrote eventually, uh, and I be began to actually apply what he was talking about. And he was coming up every week to those Pittsburgh meetings. So there was a certain amount of, of um, I mean, you always got an insight. You're always seeing things about yourself. And I knew he was talking from a perspective that somehow took into account all the intuitions I'd had growing up. And I wanted to know what that was. Um, so. I just simply began to apply uh, what he was teaching. And uh, I started, you know, reviewing my, uh, my past experiences in life that were somewhat traumatic and looking at the reasons uh, why I did things I did, thought things I thought, said things I said, behaved as I did. Some, you know, it's, uh, that can be pretty painful. And, uh, uh, as I've kind of found, uh, it was a bit of an emotional pretzel at that point. So, um, you know, I, and, I, and I began to see changes and become free of these things and not letting them to affect me as they did. And uh, so there was a certain momentum that was building up as a result of, of doing what he suggested. And uh, we also... Uh, uh, you know, there was a wider group of people uh, involved, and uh, there were some, uh, you know, developed some very close friendships, uh, certainly with Frank Mascara and uh, Dan Panchura and uh, some of the other guys in Pittsburgh. Uh, but I sat in rapport groups with those guys consistently for several years. And so the, the value of a group and the uh, the development of the sensitivity associated with rapport to me was was also something that was validating from what Rose was talking about. To what he taught, uh, and not only by reading his books, but by coming up, uh, speaking to the points that, that he was trying to make and to, to pass on to people, that became the foundation of, of my spiritual search. You mentioned sitting in rapport. For those people who don't know what you're talking about, can you give a, what are you talking about, sitting in yeah. rapport? Well, sitting in rapport, it's one of uh, two, uh, I don't know, core uh, techniques that Rose taught in working with others. Um, and then in rapport, it's a silent sitting uh, with individuals where you try to to uh, feel uh, sort of between the individuals. You, you, you might incline your mind towards 
feeling for the other person's mind, but you don't really focus there and you don't focus here on yourself, but kind of between. And it's, it's uh, as in a sense, he spoke of the word betweenness in a sense, it's putting your, trying to put your mind in an open place where it can be receptive uh, to impressions. And what I found happened is you could get impressions from people, um, some, sometimes unexpected, and you could check them out and you could validate uh, your intuition, which was another key thing that Rose uh, taught uh, the, the value of intuition. So in any event, I hope that was, gives somebody a little bit of an idea. I think uh, the, the shakers sit in silence and sometimes begin to shake, uh, at least so I've heard. Uh, but one of the fellows who checked it out uh, said he felt it was quite similar to a rapport sitting. It's just they have a very religious context in which they explain what happens. You just play devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, someone might hear what you're saying and and process that as, oh, well, they're kind of learning about how to read read other people's minds. Uh, I mean, what's that really doing for you? Is that almost sounds like uh, a parlor trick or something like that? What? Why, why was this technique one of the core things that Rose taught? Yeah, so so I think there were two things that were behind it. I think one was the development of intuition. In the exercise, the possibility arrived that you could get insights into other people, insights into yourself. And then he also spoke about the energy of rapport that occurs that would give the opportunity for people to who were at a certain point either questioning or dealing with a trauma to give them a leap or a shock in their in their efforts. And then the other the other side of it, Rose uh, was capable of what in the Zen writings is referred to as transmission of mind. And there's really nothing transmitted and it's it's using a word to describe uh, the potential of a student to in some fashion pick up on the mind of the teacher and uh, experience what the teacher experienced uh, and or ex experience what the teacher realized and and be a shortcut to enlightenment and so part of of I, I see part of rapport and the ability to bring your mind to a point of betweenness and openness was was the, the student meeting the teacher halfway. It enhanced the potential uh, for transmission to occur uh, for the student to achieve enlightenment. There was, uh, and in, in the course of of uh, Rose's time as a teacher, there was uh, one instance that was fairly dramatic where that uh, happened to a degree with um, one individual and it was quite spontaneous and quite by accident. Uh, but the person didn't reach, uh, according to him, a full realization, but um, had quite a leap and an enormous shock that resulted from it. 
So this is, uh, it sounded like this was something that you practiced for, I believe you mentioned several years, sitting in rapport with other people. Uh, what was the, uh, like, what was your time frame of involvement with Rose and his system? How, how many years were you consider yourself seriously involved with it? I think I was seriously involved with it for uh, six and a half uh, years. Um, and then I drifted away. I came back less and less for meetings. And then I ended up getting married and I was away, away from active. And well, I would occasionally come to a meeting, but I was not active at all um, with that group. Uh, I did maintain uh, friendships and met periodically with some of the friends of mine in uh, my hometown of Columbus. And <clears throat> there, it was kind of like a lifeline to have those, uh, those friends from the group who'd also uh, left the, the, the farm and moved on in life, but to have them to talk to and to meet with. And then around um, the year 2000, when I was between jobs, I tried to articulate some of the things that I felt were the deepest understandings or realizations I'd had and, and the and the questions and the awareness of those things and how they all tied together was was always kind of like the default mode that my mind went to. If if I wasn't busy, I would always go back to, you know, what the heck was this? What did it mean? And I found out, you know, sitting there in my um, in my mid 40s that I couldn't articulate it. And I was trying to write it down for my daughter. And so I thought, well, I need to figure this out. And so that's when I kind of picked it up again. And you mentioned Rose's farm. I heard it told that you were the first <laughs> farm manager of Richard Rose's farm. Is this true? No, it's not really true. Uh, there, <laughs> that's he that's had, a farm legend, huh? Yeah, it's a it's a rural legend. There you go. <laughs> so there were there were two roles that Rose asked uh, the guys on the farm to to take on in in that regard. One was a farm manager, and one was a house manager, and and there's a third role that was always uh, a very uh, time-consuming role, which was managing goats uh, that he had on the farm. But uh, now that, uh, I was the house manager, and uh, you know, there, there, you know, you got a half a dozen, twenty-something guys living in the house and a farmhouse, and there's, there's um, nobody wants to get stuck doing the same thing all the time. So I basically created a schedule, you know. If, which chores people would do. And we rotated it every week and there'd be, um, you know, and if somebody wasn't doing them, there'd be five other guys to remind them, Hey, you know, looks like the floor needs to be sweet swept or, you know, or you're going to go down and get the water down at the spring this, this week, or are we all going to go dry, <laughs> you know? So, so it was, uh, they were chores like that, just very practical things, but there was no running water there and, and uh, it was wood stoves. And there, was a, there was an electric stove and refrigerator and so forth, but um, it was 
it was pretty basic living. And so we divided up the chores and that's what I did. And I think Chuck Conrad uh, was, was the farm manager and uh, did a good job of that. He was very, very capable, handy guy. And so you were living full time on the farm or were you going to school? And then when you were on break, would you go to the farm? How, did, how was that? Yeah. So I spent, I spent two summers down there when I was in college. And then uh, when I graduated, I moved to the Wheeling area and took a job. And then I lived on the farm at that point. I stayed with the job only for about a year and then uh, left and spent the summer out at the farm, uh, which was the summer that we built a large Chautauqua building out there for holding larger gatherings. It was kind of an open air pole barn uh, design. Uh, so when the summer was over, I got a job in construction and then that took me away from the farm. And then I started drifting away after that. Uh, let me ask you about the, uh, the the building on the farm. because <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I've heard someone say, and I think it was when I was, I think I was maybe discussing with them about uh, farm projects and whatnot. And they said something to the effect of what is it with these spiritual groups? It seems like they always wind up building stuff. What does that have to do with the spiritual search? Isn't that, uh, isn't that just a waste of time? Like all this manual labor and these hours spent putting up fences and building buildings and so forth. Uh, looking back upon it, what would you say about your experience with that aspect of being in Rose's group? Well, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because it's like, well, you look at Mount Athos, you look at any any place, <laughs> some of these places are in the most outlandish locations and they had to build a lot to, to make them. But the, the goal was, I, I believe, uh, was to, to, you know, you can't sit 12 hours a day and, and end up in a healthy spot. And I think Rose believed that people needed to exercise and uh, needed to be capable people. And, you know, it's, and it's also, um, so it, it builds, it builds energy when you exercise and, and uh, that physical energy. And Rose wrote a, a whole book about energy um, and how to use it in the spiritual search. And uh, that, that whole effort to do things uh, kept us from puddling, I guess you'd say, you know, and you develop some physical energy, develop some strength as well. But and then that energy you can use uh, in your mental effort to, to if you if you just sit around, you don't develop that kind of energy. The other thing it was, it was a little bit of a challenge You bring a bunch of city kids out to a farm. Some of them haven't driven too many nails or cut down trees or build anything. And so it's kind of a challenge. And um, it was hard work, but it also served as group work to actually bring us together um, in, a, in a common effort, even though it was on the physical level. And that translated to friendships and understanding of, of each other in a, in a different way than, than we would have had otherwise. It was a more complete understanding of the individual. So 
you know, it, it developed, uh, uh, again, you know, friendships and a certain rapport among people that um, it just it built, built on everything else. And plus, you know, we, we needed to have a place for people to stay. He had a long-term plan to have a community building, which was ultimately built. He wanted to have a place for people to meet and conduct these Chautauquas. And we probably had, I don't know how many ultimately were there. There were probably four to six to eight. I don't, I don't know over the years how many we actually held, but um, they had a variety of different speakers on, on even non-philosophic topics. Uh, come uh, that uh, were not so tangential that he was running a circus, but they were, you know, the things about ESP and people exploring tarot cards and uh, a few other things like that in the during the Chautauquas, as well as you know his own talks about Zen and and deeper philosophy. You mentioned drifting away after a while after you got this construction job. I mean, was it kind of a slow? Uh, less and less I'm going to meetings or participating in, in farm activities or was there something uh, was there a, a moment when you thought I don't this is not for me or I'm not getting anywhere or do you have any sense of what precipitated that drifting away I have a definite sense of what precipitated it I mentioned when we were talking about rapport that it can facilitate the energy of rapport can facilitate leaps and shocks and the intuitions you develop around with people and the familiarity of sitting can have a benefit there there was uh, there were two events that they're not really events really they, they were in one sense uh, but when i was in pittsburgh in, in my uh, senior year I had what in retrospect now I, I feel was a, a partial realization. Uh, so that was kind of a first shoe to drop. We can talk about that more later if you want. But and then what precipitated leaving the farm for me or the momentum to leave the farm was another rapport session. Again, it, it was with uh, a couple of the guys that I had sat with for years who were also living in the Wheeling area. The best way to describe it is that is that uh, I had this thought came in. Uh, Frank was Frank Mascara was sitting right in front of me, and I admired Frank a lot. And he was a very dynamic guy. He'd been in Pittsburgh. He'd been the monitor and so forth. And we had sat for for years together. And I remember the thought came to me. Frank knows what's back there. And I had my eyes closed and I opened them up and he was staring right at me. And I asked him later, he said that was something like what was on his mind as well. But the shock made my mind wobble. Um, and I, if it had, I had this sense that it was on a knife edge and it could fall from that knife edge and I would either die or go insane. So it was, it was an immediate, it wasn't even, it was not like a philosophical thing where I might sit back and go, well, you know, no, it was like, this is happening now. And it's gonna, and, and it was like looking death in the face and it scared me tremendously. My whole body, my whole mind was just like live. 
you know, it was a reaction. It was just, you know, I'm an immature guy. I'm 22 years old. I hadn't been down the road long enough to just say whatever it is, I accept it. You know, I, the body and the mind didn't want to accept it. But the imminence of, of death, what I now realize was only a perception of the relative mind, uh, that scared me. And so <clears throat> I had this openness for about nine days afterwards. I remember thinking, you know, if, if Rose comes out here, I'll ask him about it. But I was too afraid to drive in to ask him about it. And he didn't come out in that nine week, nine day period. <laughs> and it was like the, you know, it was like, well, you know, I have to make that I, I look back on it now and it's like, well, I didn't make that commitment to go seek him out. And so it dissipated after about nine days, but I was like totally open. I had this enormous momentum to go within, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. So in the end, that's kind of what what caused me to drift away, this uh, a fear of death, basically. So um, it sounds like after that nine-day period where you were really open, like something shifted at that point, and you was it that the 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 fear came to the forefront? I'm not quite following. How you had this very fearful experience, yet you had this openness that resulted from it. And then that openness kind of faded or closed. And what, what were you left with when that openness ended? I think the memory of the fear, uh, I was left with that. And <clears throat> I don't know if there was a general reluctance or anything. I don't recall that being the case, but I, I did know that um, and I was still there for several months afterwards, and um, I did eventually ask Rose about it. <laughs> he said, it's, it's too bad I wasn't there. I might have been able to push you over. <laughs> and that fear just came roaring back in <laughs> when he said that. I'm sure that's not what he intended, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, I, had, I knew I had to get back working I, I couldn't stay out at the farm uh they didn't feel that i could anyway and so i, I don't know what shift that i guess was was a, a desire maybe maybe associated with that I'm, I'm kind of speculating now i don't remember exactly but you know that desire to live was there and it was like i i, I remember there was a desire to kind of go back to a so-called normal life. You know, as anybody who's been down the road a while knows, you can't ignore what you've what you've seen. And I and I could. And I, I think I mentioned it was my default mode was to go back to the questions about what does all this mean? How does it all tie together? So it nothing like slam shut. It was just like uh you know, what's it like to be in normal life and a little bit afraid to dive back in.
Were you getting your law? No, you weren't getting your law degree when you were at Pittsburgh, right? That no, I was. Life. Yeah, that was engineering. I was in engineering school and graduated. And then um, I practiced as an engineer for about six or seven years uh, before I went to law school. Yeah. So you you mentioned um, as time went by wanting to kind of summarize some of these questions for your daughter and how that was something that precipitated you reconnecting with the TAC group. Um, when, when you made that reconnection, what were you, uh, what were you looking, what were you looking for? What were you hoping to get out of coming back to that TAC group? You know, I, I was trying to find out what, the, my my mind viewed as ex experiences at the time, um, what they meant, and um, I wasn't really sure where it was going to lead. I was just hoping I'd get an answer. And, you know, and it was it was amazing to me that that uh, the group had continued on. There was a whole generation of people I didn't get to know, like yourself. Uh, maybe met you once or twice along the way to at a meeting, but there was a whole generation of seekers I didn't get to know. And, uh, you know, there were, there were some new friends. I mean, you, you put together some great retreats at Lindsley Outdoor Center. I got to know Paul Constant really well at one of those. And uh, then we developed, you know, some other great friends uh, that, were, that were new to me. And uh, there was a whole new group of people to work with. It's the value of a group. I mean, it, it's funny because Rose, Rose had started to decline and the organization had become exactly what he had hoped it would be. It was open uh, to, to new people. It, it was based on friendship. Uh, I'm not sure whether your realization preceded that time frame or not, Sean, uh, but it was... Uh, it was the the matrix of cooperation that he had envisioned, and, and uh, it was it was great to see. Actually, I remember thinking over the years, like you were one of the most uh, determined people that I knew, and that you kept coming back, meeting after meeting, and really, uh, really earnest. That's a word that comes to mind when I think about my impression impressions of you in those days. Uh, but I felt like you were sort of stuck on this idea that you'd had these prior experiences and that you had somehow missed out, like that was your chance. And the only way that you were going to get something was to somehow find your way back. What do you think about that? my impression? Do you think my impression was off or... You know, do you, do you have a sense of what you were trying to do, what you were looking for those years? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I think you're right on with that impression. And I think a lot of people, including myself, <clears throat> make that mistake. And, you know, looking back on it, the what really happened was that there there were moments of of realization or partial realization. There were moments of closeness to what is, and it's it's the mind that gets in the way. So what was real uh, 
was was what that those events that I mentioned uh, were, and it was really the mind that was was getting in the way. So coming back to your question, uh, your your impression was a was a good one that uh, I thought somehow getting back to those experiences would would be a way of opening the door and part of my resignation of in attitude came from uh rose having told us in order to create a light under uh, a fire under us i think a little bit was you know you got to find out an answer before you're 30 or when you're in your 30s and if you don't do it then well you're done for and then it was like well you got to find out an answer by the time you're 40, you know, as we got older. <laughs> so, you know, ultimately, um, I was in my 60s and several other people were, were older as well. I think it's because we continued to, to, to fail and try again and, and that there was something fundamental about the questions that we didn't let go of. Do you see a, do you see a, difference between the the way that you were seeking um, when you came back to the tech group versus the way that you were seeking when you first came to the tech group yeah I think uh, I'll do it in the reverse order when I first started you know I was like a little kid trying to play soccer and Rose was the coach saying hey you know try this over here and you know, you might try this technique over here. Uh, here's a good book to read. Uh, you know, he sort of, he knew the playing field and he, and he could sense kind of where we were. And, um, and he was laying out a system at a very high level. It wasn't, he's not, wasn't, it's not a prescriptive system, the halogen system, but he was laying it out. So it was, it was, you know, a learning phase. It was the early stage of seeking when I came back, um, I was a little bit, a uh, little bit more beat up by life. A few more life experiences. I had kids. Um, time was was uh, was at more of a premium, and um, you know, looking ahead, it's like, well, life looks a lot shorter than it did. So uh, there was a a feeling that I kept coming back to that I have to put everything on the table. Uh, nothing can be ig ignored or protected. I have to have to put, you know, I have, I, you know, I feel like I, I put my relationships uh, in the family a little bit at risk because I would take off for a weekend or go to a retreat and um, instead of being home for something, um, and I needed to to put my beliefs out there to question them. Um, so it was it was more it was a deeper commitment I think that was different um, the second time around. I also had a need which I I never had fulfilled earlier to read some of the other. Uh, writings that I found to be very deep and insightful, and they had a much greater impact on me than I ever would have expected. I read read Nisargadatta's 
books and Ramana Maharshi. And I was just, I felt like I was among old friends when I would read those. It's like, you know, they were, they were, uh, it was just like Rose, you know, there was, there was a depth there that, that would come out and uh, to me, and you can sense it. And, and plus there's there, the means of expression was different. So there was a lot, there was a lot of fodder beyond just Rose's teachings uh, when I got back into it. Gosh, I guess it was, uh, you mentioned the year 2000. How many, how many years was it from then to when you had your final experience? If, if that's the right word to use for it. Yeah, well, the, the, the realization was in 2019 at the April TAP meeting. And do you feel like, uh, uh, kind of the perennial question, do you feel like there was something that uh, had shifted in you in the, in the lead up to that realization? Uh, maybe a change in the, in the way that you were proceeding with your search or, uh, or an inspiration that had struck you? Was there anything like that? Or was it just another year? No, it was, it was, uh... Yeah, there's some, you hear people say as, as they get, as, as they look back on it, they see that there's seriousness that precedes. And, and that was true for me as well. Um, and people looking back, you'll also hear them say, you know, the universe responds to your commitment. And as odd as that might sound, um, in ways that we don't anticipate or not, or even don't necessarily want. Um, but if you've made the commitment, uh, it ultimately comes down to you just don't give a damn about anything else. And I was getting to that point, um, and I and in the in the six months leading up to it, I uh, went through some very difficult times at work um, that were confrontational to my ego, um, just, just really pretty awful. And then, um, you know, I got a lot of uh, tensions from uh, the home life uh, leading up to that. And so I was like, well, you know, it, it kind of got to that point. You just didn't give a, a a damn anymore. You just wanted to know. And then, you know, the year turned. Uh, you set up the April meeting that uh, that year in 2019, and we'd been trying to get uh, Paul Hederman there for quite a while. You managed to succeed in getting him there. Bart was a speaker. Paul Resendez, Norio Kushi. And, and then Paul Constant was leading the rapports. And when I first saw that come out, I had this, just this inspirational feeling about it. It was like, yeah, just a really inspirational feeling about the meeting. And, uh, um, and you know, I don't know that there was any, any one thing, any speaker, said there i uh, had had a great conversation with bart kind of on the side and 
and enjoyed, you know, meeting Hederman and hearing him pound away at us for a while with selfing. <laughs> and uh, Norio had a had a good talk. And uh, uh, one of the things that was that really uh, was key for me, I think that that weekend uh, was a conversation with Norio. And I, I told him about the experience I'd had back in Pittsburgh, uh, my last year of college uh, that I alluded to earlier. Um, and there's a certain feeling that I still had of that. Um, and So when I told him about it, uh, he made a comment that kind of was like a little clue. He didn't know. He, I don't think he was giving me a clue, but he he just said, you know, and uh, he he started talking to me, and he said, "Well, you know, there's me. We're sitting we're sitting next to each other, and there was a chair in between us." He's, he says, "There's me, and then then there's you, and then there's." between. <laughs> and I didn't realize he was talking about between us, but he was. And he said, and, and that's the creative space where such things as what happened to me, you know, 40 some years before can happen. And I thought, that's, that's interesting. The next time I have that feeling in a rapport session, I'll follow it. And so the next day, you know, we were, when we sat in the morning, you know, it was a pretty intense sitting. And then that feeling uh, arose and I followed it with absolutely no reservation. Like I said, I was at that point where it's just, I don't give a damn. I'm going to follow that. And then, and then that was, uh, the rest was just revealed. It was uh, so. You asked about things that led up. I brought you right up to the to the last thing. But uh, for me, you know, as a result, uh, the rapport sittings. Uh, they have a great potential. Uh, for anyone who's a seeker, um, as you've said yourself in the past, you know, a person can sit in rapport with themselves. And of course, many people who uh, whose stories of realization I've heard involve them being by themselves and something that triggers uh, for them. And it's it's unique to everybody, uh, as as you know. Uh, but there's something I I feel about getting the mind, finding the mind, arising in this place of betweenness, this openness, where the only thing that matters is to 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 know for the or to become, to, to realize truth for the sake of truth.
itself. There's, there's nothing to be gained by the individual. There's nothing that, that you or I or anyone else has that someone else doesn't. It's just you become that. It's the only thing that there is. So you're not, you're not really becoming anything. You're just becoming, I guess, your relative mind's becoming aware of, of it. And you think that uh, purposefully sitting for rapport can help increase the odds, let's say, of something like that happening? Yeah, it's, to me, it's the feeling and intuitive side of the search. And um, I remember Rose uh, ran into a quote, or not necessarily a quote, but a uh, some writings by, I think it was D.T. Suzuki, where he, where he talked about, you know, the path of inquiry and the path of meditation, and that there were two schools of Zen that ended up diverging. And it was a school that was all became all intellectualized and all he had the questions and he had the answers and it was all kind of dialectic. And the other side, people just totally focused on meditation. And he always said you have to have a foot in both paths. You have to, to have feeling and then you have to have reason. And you know, I think rapport sittings build the intuitive side of the individual and uh you know, make you open to seeing things in yourself and and others. And you you help uh, facilitate a group uh, out of Columbus now nowadays, right? And uh, and do you all I think I've heard that you actually do uh, rapport sittings sometimes online? Is that correct? Yeah, and um, there's. There's uh, uh, good evidence that people can uh, feel rapport among each other. Uh, you know, when when you boil it right down, we're not as far apart from each other as what our minds believe we are. And uh, not saying that we have a lot of psychic experiences happening because that's not the point of it. Um, the point of it is is to to try to find this feeling of, of betweenness and openness uh, by working with others and feeling, uh, feeling uh, both outward and, and between. And um, so it's, it's been an, inter I view it as an experiment. Um, and so we've experimented with any number of things to see what would enhance rapport when you're not in the same room. Um, I think that the, the individual can still, in picking up on their own, their own internal awareness, uh, energy is felt by many of those who, who sit. When, you, when you're in a group in the same room, there's something about being in a same room that's even more powerful. And once in-person meetings started again for the TAP meetings, there were several of us who had been sitting online who sat together. And there was a clear difference, at least for me, um, in the ease with which uh, I got into rapport uh, with them. And uh, <clears throat> there was a good bit of energy that, that arose as a result. I have to say too, um, 
there was totally separately. I sat, there was another rapport session in the, um, I don't know, maybe it was eight or 10 years ago when we were meeting in Pennsylvania, Penn Scenic View, uh, with one of the, one of the folks in the group, I had this sense when they came into the room that it, it kind of lightened up. And so at the end of a session, we sat together and, uh, it was an extremely deep, uh, rapport developed, uh, and all I had to do was remember this person's eyes and it would bring me right back into it for six months afterwards. It was rather, rather unusual. So when you develop this familiarity with your fellow seekers, uh, it builds upon itself and people who've gone to retreats and you've been in them as well. You know, when you repeatedly sit in rapport over the course of a, of a weekend or a uh, a week. It's very easy to to get back into rapport. It's very easy for the energy or, of rapport uh, or the energy that you might say is associated with rapport uh, to become apparent. And it can be helpful to people. Uh, it provides like my, my own experience has shown me. And as Rose said, it can provide leaps and shocks to people and, and uh, accelerate their progress. So for people who are listening to this, who uh, aren't TAT members or don't come to the TAT Center meetings, um, would they be able to go to your online Columbus meetings or is that kind of a, a private group of people who are more familiar with each other? It's, it's more by uh, invitation. Uh, it's more... You know, the, it wouldn't, uh, Rose always felt that it was appropriate for people that were sympathetic, kind of simpatico with each other, as you might say, or he, he also said vibrate kind of the same. And, and even when we had, you know, 18, 20 members in the Pittsburgh group, he would uh, suggest certain people sit together uh, for that reason. He felt they were more compatible. So, um, yeah, it's, it's more by, it started uh, actually with the suggestion of someone who's not able to sit right now, but um, she had identified half dozen people that she felt uh, were sensitive enough and began to feel rapport in their online confrontation meetings. And so that was the core group we started with. And then since then, there have been maybe half a dozen others that asked to join and some people dropped off and some people have joined. So it's, um, it's a, been a changing group, but um, it, it, my, I guess my answer is, you know, just somebody out of the blue, probably not. Uh, I mean, the first step is to, to get involved in a confrontation group and begin to, and then we get to know them, that might be a very appropriate step. And by getting involved in a confrontation group, do you mean uh, another group that you run or uh, no, anyway. some of the TAT local groups? Yeah, any of the, any of the local groups. There's, there's pe people meeting within the uh, 
broader umbrella of people that are TAP members. There, there's meetings going on all around the, the country, probably mostly outside of outside of your your group in California. If you're still meeting out, outside of that, uh, it's more east of the Mississippi and up and down the eastern seaboard and down to Florida. But um, yeah, I mean, there's there's opportunities to join groups online um, as well. And many of them are still meeting virtually. Like our group in Ohio turned out to, we only have two people in Ohio now. And so there's, there's, a, there's still, a, there's a core group, but, you know, a couple people from California and Maryland and Florida and North Carolina. So they're, we're all scattered around right now. So we've kept it virtual. Yeah, so people could uh, people could go to tapfoundation.org and uh, look up the tap forum link, and that would take them to local group activity and and have contact info and whatnot if they wanted to pursue that. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's a good way to get involved, and uh, it's kind of a first step, really. See if it's see if the the approach appeals to their intuition about uh, something to do. Some people come that are just dipping their toe in it for the first time, and others have been around the block so much that they're almost jaded. <laughs> you know, but they uh, won't quit. But they don't quit. That's the important thing. What about uh, what about a person who? Uh, you would like to would like to explore rapport, but doesn't necessarily want to reach out to a tech group. Maybe they're just they're not group people. Is there anything what is there anything that they could do? Like could they uh, could they form their own little rapport group with some friends? And sure. Uh, sure. and if Absolutely. so, like is there any uh, guide for? how they would do that, any resource that you could point them to for some helpful clues? Well, certainly, you know, the the working together has gone on for thousands of years. So, yeah, they can form a group. And and uh, I think Rose talks a little bit about uh, rapport groups in, in various of his writings. Uh, it's in a new book that... Uh, you know, we've pulled some excerpts out about that, uh, the book Passages that's recently published. Um, the Energy Papers uh, speak about, uh, about it to a degree, and so does the psychology of the observer. But it's really, it's a meditative technique. Um, and it, you, it, it might sound... Uh, uh, I don't know what you would say, a little bit impossible, but, you know, even uh, if you read Ramana Maharshi's uh, writings and the accounts of people who went to visit him, he, he taught in silence. And I think a lot of what he did was he would sit, sit and people would get in rapport with him and uh, pick up something of depth that, uh, and something that resonated in them that was uh by by doing so so i think people can do it and and try and um i don't know where else to actually look sean i mean 
you know, everyone's uh, free to contact us and ask us, you know, what to do, what to, what to try, uh, what to look for. Uh, I know that uh, uh, you kind of go into it with a light heart without expectations. And, uh, you know, and hopefully there's, there's people there that, that uh, like, like I mentioned, they kind of vibrate at the same frequency. There's nobody that's like uptight about somebody in the group that they're sitting with and see what happens. I used to think uh, early on, because we sat in rapport in the, in the Pittsburgh, uh, we might have a little sitting at the very beginning of the, of the meetings. Um, but I always thought, because uh, Rose would come up for some of the rapport sessions early on, I always thought it was, had to do with him. And then I realized it's when we met one time when he when he wasn't around uh, that it was a group of the monitors from all over Ohio and Pennsylvania all came together in Pittsburgh and we sat and there was a, it was it's an incredible session um, and I realized that energy is what arises you know basically in the context of Christ saying we're we're two or three or more are gathered, there am I. There's, there's an energy uh, among serious seekers that that's, uh, seems to be attracted to their effort. Yeah, that was a, it was a good list of books that you, that you mentioned, and I will, I'll link to those in the show notes for this podcast episode so people can go to my website, spiritualteachers.org, and and look up the Mike Gegenheimer episode and they can find links to those resources. And if, if people wanted to contact you, what's the best way to do that? Probably through um, an email that they could find in the uh, TAT forum under local spiritual groups, Columbus, Ohio. Um, there's a, I think a link to my email address in there. Um, okay. That's probably the best way. Got it. Yeah. I'll mention that too in the show notes. So uh, one, one question I have, and this is kind of a, this could be a tough, a tough question, but in terms of people that you run into these days, seekers that you, have conversations with do you have any thoughts about what are the the main obstacles that you see that people are facing well i i i could go back through a whole list of things that rose points out in the albigen papers but i don't he's already written that and people can look at that but i i think when i I, uh, we have both this confrontation group and that, that we're I'm working with and then the, the uh, rapport group. And I think the, the biggest obstacle is, is the, the belief in self. And there's not a whole hell of a lot a person can do about that, but there's, that's the same belief I had, which was that, the mind is somehow going to get this and that the mind is somehow going to figure it out. 
the mind is somehow going to grasp something and still survive, mind you, won't have to die or appear to die. I mean, that's a that's a big fear. And some people that are that been down the road a bit, they say, like, well, I I can see this means I'm, you know, I, so they're identified with the mind, am gonna die. And the fact is you don't. What what happens is you you, you are unfooled about the fact that you 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 know it's a belief that that you are this individual and you really don't exist the way you think you do so to me the the biggest you know at, at a very high level <clears throat> is it's not something you can do a lot about directly um, because when you see it you're it's from a it's you're beyond the mind when it becomes absolutely apparent that you aren't real, you aren't really what you think you are. So uh, you wrote a whole book about what do you do about that problem? And the book's called Subtraction. And, you know, there's the, the effort seems like it has to continually continually challenge um, what you're believing and to a certain degree the way you're acting and I, I think as as people mature and seeking what's in front of them is going to be a little different for everybody uh, but life if they're if they're committed life was going to bring up the issues that they need to deal with in the order that they need to deal with them. And I don't, I don't understand how that happens, but I look back and I see it and it's like, you know, I was able to stuff my feelings for, for, you know, 50 years until I had to finally deal with what is, what, what does it mean to, to feel? What is, why don't I feel love like I should, you know, what, or think I should, you know, what, why is this in the way? But finally it became in the way and I had to deal with it. So, um, you know, I'm somehow, somehow it works that way. I think life, life becomes our teacher in that sense. So given that, uh, do you think that there is, uh, looking back, is there anything that you could have done differently? Or did things just have to play out the way that they played out? Well, that's always a kind of a trick question, right? So I, th I think they played out the way they had to play out for, for, you know, for this character. Um, I do often wonder uh, if I'd gone to see Rose, what would have happened back in my early 20s? Um, would have changed the entire course of my life. And I'm not at all bothered by the fact that I have a beautiful family and wonderful kids and all that. So I wouldn't want to change that. You know, so there's, there's, despite having taken the long path, as people call it, 
which was a long and tortured path in a lot of ways. You know, I, I wouldn't trade what what has occurred. There's this that reminds me. There's a story, short story, by H.G. Wells, I think, called "The Green Door." Huh. And uh, you know, this guy who yeah. moments crop up in his life where he has this vision of something more real than where he is, but he's too busy and, uh, you know, oh, I'll get to that later. So these, these opportunities pop up and then they disappear. Uh, do you, do you feel, do you sense or feel like there are moments like that in our lives where we have a, a choice and we could, if we were really in connection with what we truly wanted, we would make a different decision than going with whatever is in front of the mind in the moment. Yes, I, I do. Uh, that story had great meaning to me. It's funny you should mention it. I hadn't thought about it for a while because I felt like I was at that green door I couldn't find my way back. I mean, this, so it's an incredible allegory for a few of those things that happened to me. Mm. That didn't happen to me, but they happened. I guess you'd say, I don't know. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it boils down to, uh, in, in my estimation, to commitment and understanding what your what's the most important thing and then being committed to it and um, I think my you know the, some of these these things at all uh, these partial realizations or these glimpses these satori's were the or along the way um, they were all unexpected spontaneous things. And it's kind of like death, you know, death, death creeps up on you and, you know, it, it's over before you know it. And uh, I say that like I've been there, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the fact is it's sudden and unexpected, these realizations and these, these satories. And if it opens a door and you're committed to it, uh, to 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 seek whatever is being revealed and accepted, then uh, you know I think you're right. The, there's moments where you could, you know, you pop through and you find that door never existed. <laughs> you know, you were always on the other side of the door. You just didn't know it. Well, we're. We're coming up, I, th I think, on the hour and a half mark. Uh, just a just a couple questions that uh, I usually ask people. Uh, well, how about a uh, what's a book? Is there a particular book that you recommend the most? You know, it, it sort of depends on who I'm talking to, but the one I recommend the most uh, tends to be the Psychology of the Observer by Rose. Uh, simply because he lays out 
Uh, and, and as a companion to that, the meditation papers. Between the two, he lays out the mind and the way that it functions uh, in a way that it's extremely thought-provoking for people and provides enormous amount of, of fodder for meditation and reflection. Um, and of course, if, if somebody's um, uh, interested in, in his writings, you know, the Albigen Papers is, is a good rigorous read. It's a little, little more difficult for some people to read, but that's why I suggest the Psychology of the Observer uh, uh, at the outset. Um, you know, if it's a more, uh, you know, a, a seeker that's maybe a little further along, I might suggest uh, the Sargadatas, I Am That, and uh, Ramana Maharshi, Ramana Maharshi's books. And then if, a, if someone, is attracted to the sutras. Uh, Bart Marshall's uh, perennial way is a, is a great um, translation of some of the, the ancient sutras. And, um, you know, for me provided many hours of reflective uh, thinking and feeling for the meaning in them. Uh, I, I, I've taken that and the psychology observer all over the world with me when I've traveled, <laughs> just as, uh. And how about, uh, I'm always curious if, uh, there's a favorite film or perhaps a TV series, something along those lines that you feel touches upon these matters. Um, you know, I, I thought about that since you mentioned that, uh, you might ask about that and I don't know that there's anything that's touching on these matters, but the movie Patton is one that I watched many times and there's something about the attitude and the commitment that, George C. Scott portrays Patton as having, and uh, you know the tough decisions that have to be made, the commitment to go forward despite you know the army bitching and you know you know in the case of the seeker egos dying around you you know, but it's the I don't give a damn kind of attitude. This is what we've we've got to do, and. And it's more for the seeker, it's more of the, I don't give a damn. This is what I wish to become, the truth. And one of the one of the scenes that always sticks out to me is is a, a tank battle where uh, uh, the tanks, his his uh, squad of tanks runs out of fuel. He gets out beyond, they get out beyond where they can be resupplied. They run out of fuel and they run into a panzer division. And it's just like, they don't get out and run. They just turn and start fire. And they, they end up fighting hand to hand, which is reminds me a little bit of uh, Arjuna's conversation with Krishna. You know, I'm not going to kill my brothers, but they, they were hand to hand at the end. And then they have a little scene where Patton comes up and 
there's a captain that's there has managed to survive and he tells him what happens and he leans down and kisses him and it's just like you know it doesn't get any tougher than that and it doesn't get any more appreciative than that so for some reason that movie always attracted me just because of the commitment and the that that was demonstrated in the movie and you know they were based on real events yeah more thank, you, more, thanks for that more than you wanted to know <laughs> yeah i haven't thought about that film in a long time and uh that's a that's a really neat take on that which i never even considered i thought you were going to mention uh the scene where Patton is looking out across the Roman ruins and he's talking about, I think it was the Carthaginians or something like that in this historic battle. And they're playing this really otherworldly music like Patton was there in some prior life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really I, I was, uh, I was thinking about that, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mention it, but yeah, that was always uh you know, it's, uh, evidently he didn't know that that battlefield was there. He just found it. Guy was like, like you know, that's an evidence of intuition developed from whatever, from his study of of war. Right, and that and that I think goes back to one of my pet theories that you develop intuition in that area upon which you focus. So if your focus is war, then that is where your intuitive leaps occur. I've I've seen that uh, in in my uh, career dealing with scientists and engineers who develop an intuition about a, a technology or materials or something, where without experimentation they just kind of know what needs to be done. Um, and one, one example comes to mind, a guy was studying how to mold a certain part, but it kept breaking and he kept doing it over and over and over again. And then somehow he realized if he did just the right steps, that this thing, this, this thin foil of metal could be bent and not tear. And it was just like, this is a guy who's so hands-on, he became intuitive about his subject. And I, I agree with you. It's the same thing, which is why I think, you know, Rose advised us all early on, especially uh, to to read different books to get a different perspective on the same thing he was speaking of. And, and uh, so he talked about the conquest of illusion, reading that. He talked about there weren't as many opportunities to read things back in the 70s, but there were some books by Gurdjieff they recommended uh, just basically because they they spoke about working together in a group in the school and uh, different levels of, of mankind and seekers. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others uh, that came up. The Three Pillars of Zen, some people read. Uh, and then... Uh, 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 there's one that deals with the super conciliatory principle, but I can't recall the, the Benoit. Benoit, yes, yeah. Hubert, Hubert Benoit, yeah. So 
but there's a lot of other writings now that are maybe more digestible than some of those uh, more easily understood. Perhaps even your book, Sean, uh, <laughs> which I found to be uh, a, a really great, uh, a great read for someone who's trying to understand what can you do and what's, what kind of path does, is it? Because it isn't a direct approach at something that you imagine, but rather a subtractive path from those things that you thought you were or that you were attached to that you that are in your way. I, I got to get more guests on here who plug my books. This is <laughs> a great benefit. I didn't realize. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, um, I mean, I really appreciate the time the time you've spent with me. Are there, uh, it's a broad question, but is there anything that we haven't touched upon that, that you feel like you want to mention? Yeah, there is, there's one thing. And, uh, uh, there's, there's this, uh, idea of betweenness that Rose writes about and, uh, I alluded to a couple times uh, a partial realization back in my early 20s in, in Pittsburgh. And to me, when I look back on it, that there was something about the circumstances and no one set them up. It was entire, entirely uh, uh, unexpected. And, uh, but there was a there was a betweenness that occurred. Uh, so Dan uh, Panchura and myself had been sitting all through my undergraduate years. This was my senior year, so we'd been sitting in rapport. And he was he was one of those guys that kind of I, I, I vibrated kind of the same in the same way. He was we're totally different guys. I was an engineering student, right? And he was kind of like a mill hunk, but he was. He was really smart and really interested and high energy guy. And uh, Rose had made a comment to his girlfriend who was down in, in Benwood uh, where Rose was. Uh, and he said, what do you, what do you think he meant by this comment? And uh, the, the comment was, uh, I, there were there were three of the girls, three of the women in the kitchen, and he came to the doorway and he said, "I see, I see three little girls playing, but they don't see me." And uh, and so Dan was like, "Well, what, what did he mean?" And he was so intense on trying to figure this out that it caught fire in me. And it's like I don't know what you know what did he mean? And then we started going back and forth talking. What was it? Could it mean this? You know, could it mean that? Could it mean this? And our minds both kind of went into hyperdrive on this thing. And, and as it turned out, the only it was like the only thing we wanted to know was what did he mean? It was like a koan, right? And 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 and, and then it was the night to sit and report. You know, a half dozen other guys wandered in the house and then we all kind of sat down and we, and so we had to stop talking. And, and we both, you know, sat in rapport and tried to 
do it. It was kind of a dead rapport, but I, my mind was kind of spinning in the background, even though I was trying to sit in rapport and I, I suspect his was too. The moment it was over, uh, we had our, our, our awareness uh, became a singular undifferentiated awareness. And I knew what he knew and he knew what I knew and no doubt that, and, and this, this was, uh, as I look back on it, um, there's two things about it. One is that there was this combination of intensity and a desire to know one thing. And then there was this feeling exercise. So we just like suspended it. And then the moment, it was over, something happened. I, I wouldn't begin to explain it other it can't, I don't know why spontaneous things like this happen, but as I look back on it now, I, it was what Ramana Maharshi would refer to, at least in my estimation, as the uh, Kivala Nervakalpa Samadhi, the bucket dipping into the well and then being drawn out again. It was singular undifferentiated awareness and that was all that there was. We, we were both, since, I mean, there was no, this is also to me validated my God transmission can occur. This is, this is, this is the same thing uh, only Neither of us was, was, was realized, so there was nothing to transmit per se. But to that point, uh, we also, the whole world was out there. And so this was kind of like a, a, a first shoe to drop uh, that had, had we seen the, the Dan and the, the belief in Dan, the belief in Mike out there and something more profound may have resulted. But as it was, the answer we were looking for was made absolutely apparent to us. There was no more question after that. And uh, to me, there's this power of betweenness that can occur at any time when a person has the, the singular commitment to become, to, to feel for an answer, to find, to find a resolution of, of some, uh, some deep question or a question that has depth, maybe you might say. And, uh, somehow finds the right combination of intensity and feeling. And to me, that's one of the things that like a rapport session can be a shortcut as a result. And for me, these were, these leaps and shocks that came from working with others would not have occurred, uh, nor do I think I'd be having this conversation without having worked with a group of people similarly minded uh, over the course of my checkered past. Uh, 
<laughs> my checkered past as a seeker. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank yeah. you for that. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Sean, to, to finally get, get to you. I know, I don't know if you could even say the third time's a charm. It might've been the fourth or fifth time we tried to get, get together. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. But I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing to, to try to make uh, information uh, available to people that might stir up their thinking and, and maybe they'll hear something that could be of value someday. Yeah, yeah, appreciate it, Mike. So I'll just uh, I'll just close by uh, recapping. Uh, in case you didn't catch it, uh, Mike Gagenheimer. Mike Gagenheimer is co-author with Sean Nevins of this amazing book, Passages and Introduction and Commentary on Richard Rose's Albage and System, which you can pick up on Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. And then Mike also has a group in Columbus, Ohio, and you can find out more about that by going to tapfoundation.org, checking out the TAP forum page, and uh, you can read about the Columbus group and also get Mike's contact info there. So it's been a pleasure, Mike, and uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. It's a good talk. Great, thanks, Sean, thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. For more information about today's guest, as well as more interviews, books, and other resources, go to spiritualteachers.org. That's spiritualteachers.org.